All right, let's, ah, there you go. The other thing I wanted to accomplish tonight, and I think I might have enough time to do it, is to uh, speak to you for a little bit about your uh, part in God's plan for missions. So I want to be very um, alert to our time here and uh, see what we can do to maximize that. Here's what I want you to do. Take your Bibles for now. Turn to Psalm 2, please. Psalm 2. Let's begin with this. Uh, uh, the story of life on planet Earth is the story of God's passion for his own glory. Did you get that? That's an important quotation, don't you think? The story of life on planet Earth is the story of God's passion for his own glory. You might say, now, now, wait a minute, wait a minute. That sounds maybe narcissistic or self-centered of God or something. Well, no, it isn't. God's passion for his glory is literally the essence of his love for us. Think of it this way. God's love for us keeps God at the center of all of our lives. That's exactly what he wants. If God's love made us central and focused on our value, it would distract us from what is most important, most precious, which is God himself. Love labors and suffers to enthrall us with what is infinitely and eternally satisfying, which is God Himself. Now, I know this is your missions conference, so a good thing to do would be to start with quoting John Piper from his epic work on missions, Let the Nations Be Glad. And here is what Piper says that is so very helpful to all of us. Missions is not the ultimate... I'm saying this out loud in your missions conference. Is that okay? Missions is not... The ultimate goal of the church, worship, is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity. But worship abides forever. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and the goal of missions. It's the goal of missions because in missions we simply aim to bring the nations into the white, hot enjoyment of God's glory. The goal of missions is the gladness of the people's in the greatness of God. Somebody should say amen. Amen to that. Let's look at that title once again. What is God's plan? What is your part in God's plan for missions? Well, let's first answer the question, what is God's plan for missions? We could go to Revelation chapter 5, and we could read verses 6 through 10, but let me skip ahead and begin at verse 9 for you, and here's what it says. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood 
you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. God's plan for missions is that his name be glorified in every people group, in every language, on every continent, among all peoples, at all times. We have missions because we're not worshiping in, in the hearts of all the people at all times. So for now, missions are necessary. But as John Piper said, missions are missions are temporary. Now, okay, so if we're going to talk about your involvement in God's plan for your part in God's plan for missions, then where are we going to go in our Bibles? I've already asked you to turn to Psalm chapter 2. We could have gone to Mark 16, 15 and just talked about going to all the world and preach the gospel. That's a good text for missions. Or John 4, 35. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white already for harvest. We could have gone there. Or here's a good one. This will preach, in case anybody here is into that kind of thing. 1 Corinthians 16, 8 and 9. Paul says, a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. That sounds like a four-point sermon to me, don't you think? A wide door. That, that's what God has given to all of us, to all of the world, a wide door for effective service. We have missionaries in this conference that are doing service of all different kinds very effectively for the sake of God's glory has opened to me. That's your calling to be able to be involved in the work of worldwide missions in your life right now where you are and, listen to this, and not but, not however there are many adversaries but, and here's a fact, there are many adversaries. Now, that'd be a good thing to preach. Nope. Instead, we've gone here to the Psalms. And why have we gone to the Psalms? As, uh, let's see, did I? Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to say where I am. <coughs> As George Peterson, his classic theology of missions, has said, missionary preaching is supported in the Psalms by more than 175 references of a universalistic note relating to the nations of the world. Many of them bring hope of salvation to the nations. Indeed, the Psalter is one of the greatest missionary books in the world, though seldom seen from that point of view. And a pastor with Dutch heritage, which you can't help but like, right? Vander, you get him. Pastor of Dutch heritage said... The repeated calls for worldwide worship in the Psalms assume, <coughs> indeed, require world missions. So we're going to go to the Psalms. Now the question is, if these two guys are right in what they have said, and when we go to the Psalms, what Psalm are we going to go to to be able to talk about worldwide missions and particularly your part in God's plan for missions? We could easily go to Psalm 51 or 67 or 72 or 91 
or 96, or 110, or 117, or 145. There are numerous psalms that are missiological in their message, and all of these would be a great place for us to go to talk about God's plan for missions and then make application concerning your part in God's plan. But we're going to go to Psalm 2. <coughs> and so, I'd like you to stay with me while I... <laughs> I think I'm clicking too fast here. Is that what happened? Did I go too fast? Okay. I think we're, we're getting out of back. Yeah, there it is. All right. Psalm... You can tell I'm kind of feeling pressured by time a little bit here. We're going to go to Psalm 2. I'm going to read this for us, if you don't mind, and ask you to follow along as I read. This is Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree, says the Lord to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, now, therefore, people of Delaware Bible Church, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Psalm 2 is, as you probably know, closely related, not just chronologically, but closely related to Psalm 1, Jewish and Christian tradition indicates that there was a time when these two psalms were actually together. They were considered one psalm. They stand together in our text like sort of a double doorway into the book of Psalms. H.B. Charles said this, In a real sense, these two psalms seem out of place. Psalm 1 seems as if it would better fit in the wisdom literature of Proverbs, Psalm 2 seems as if it would fit better as a messianic passage in the prophets. Psalm 1 contrasts the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked and asks you to choose which way you will live. Psalm 2 warns you that there is a consequence to the choice you make. Psalm 1 declares the Lord's authority over individuals. Psalm 2 declares the Lord's authority 
over the nations. Psalm 2 is the second most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Eight of the 27 books of the New Testament include reference to Psalm 2. In total, the second psalm is mentioned 17 times in other places in the Bible. So now, let's answer the other part of the title, which is, what is your part in God's plan for missions? And here it is, two things. One is what you're already doing, and what is what you should be doing next? The first thing, what you are already doing. What you are already doing is you are watching the nations rage. It's very interesting. The psalm begins, why do the nations, and it could be translated this way, why do the nations noisily assemble? What is sort of a rhetorical question. We'll get to the answer in just a moment. There is a plot, as you can see in verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves together. There is a plot that causes the nations to noisily assemble against the Lord. There is this collective rebellion in the nations against anything that has to do with who God is and what he is attempting to accomplish in this world. Political leaders, international leaders, can't agree on much. <laughs> that sounds like I'm reading from today's newspaper, doesn't it? They can't agree on much, but they can agree on one thing. Men must reign on earth, God cannot. This is not his world, this is our world. We get to do with this world what we decide to do with this world, therefore... We will continue to plot against God and against each other. There is this coordinated defiance against God. A collective spiritual rebellion exists in every sphere of our society and in societies around the world against God. In politics, in entertainment, in academia, in technology, in finances, listen to this. Even in many quarters in religion, there is this coordinated defiance against what God clearly says in his word. The nations rage. The wicked view, verse 3, the wicked view God's authority as bondage, as slavery. So what's the goal? The goal is remove God from every vestige of society, everything that could possibly have any influence by God and his people, from the courts, from the schools, from your workplace. Remove God from all of that. Let's get rid of it, of him. What is your response to the nation's raging your response must be to stand. To graciously and strategically press against and teach your children to winsomely oppose the flood of God-denying wickedness in our culture and in our world. The nations are raging against the authority of God. And we must stand. 
graciously and strategically and winsomely against all that is opposing God's rule on earth. Second, what do you do now? What are you already doing now? What you are already doing is experiencing God's forbearance, uh, God's self-control, God's patience, God's endurance as the nations are raging. What is the response to the raging of the nations? Did you see it in verse 4? This probably made you laugh, right? He who sits in the heavens laughs. God's response to the raging of the nations is literally to laugh. He holds them in derision, the text says, in contempt, in disdain, in disrespect. Human rebellion is divine comedy. God is laughing at the nations. John Calvin said, if God does not immediately stretch forth his hand against the ungodly, now it be, because, it's because now is his time for laughter. Why? Because God knows, and you know, that he is absolute in his sovereignty. God could, with a flick of his finger, destroy all the nations that rage against him at this moment. This is the time for God to laugh at the nations. God is not, at this moment, panicking. He's not reaching for a plan B for his eternal plan. He's not plugging the leaks in his eternal plan. He's laughing to think that the nations would rage against the one who is infinite in his power, complete in his holiness, and in divine sovereignty watches all of these nations laughing. God laughs. Somebody asked me offhandedly, you're going to think this is, <laughs> you'll, you'll know a little bit more about the way I think, the way I process things when I give you my answer to the question. Somebody asked me offhandedly and innocently at some point, hey, Wayne, what's happening? And here was my answer. My answer was, God is, at this point, patiently yet inexorably fulfilling his eternal decrees for his own glory. That's what's happening. Did you know that's what's happening right now? Oh, there's a lot of world events going on. There's a lot of political upheaval. There's a lot of talk and chatter about all kinds of things in the good old U.S. of A., but also in other places around the world. Do you know what God is doing? Do you know what's happening? God, who is infinite in his sovereignty, is patiently, yet inexorably, fulfilling his eternal decrees for the sake of his own glory. That's what's happening. It helps me to think that way. Does it help you? This is God doing what only God can do and what God does at all times. The world is, <laughs> the world is raging against God's authority. I get this mental image of a tiny spider 
weaving a tiny web to stop a charging lion. The nations can rage. God laughs because he knows his plan for what will be happening on this earth. So what's your response to that? God speaks, and when he speaks, he says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. What's your response to God's laughter and the anointing of Jesus as king? The answer is that when God speaks, you worship. You consistently monitor. Here's what I mean by worship. You consistently monitor your affections and train your heart to find satisfaction in Christ alone. You know, don't you? Because you're, you're in a well-taught Bible church. You know that when God made us, we go all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2. You know why God made us? God did not make us because he was lonely. Did you know that? Some people say, why did God even make people to populate this world? Oh, I think it was because he was sitting in heaven and he was lonely. He needed some fellowship. So he made someone like me because I'm so wonderful that God just needed to fellow. That's just not right. We know that God has, a, has an eternal, self-sustaining, self-fulfilling relationship with himself. He has always existed as three in one. God doesn't need you, and he doesn't need me. So why did he make the earth and all that is in it? Why did he make people to glorify his own name? We know that from Isaiah 43, 6 and 7. All that he made in the earth and all the people he ever made on the earth were made for the purpose of his glory. The reason that you are going to draw the next breath of God's free air is only so that you can live long enough to give more glory to him. And when your glory-giving days are done, you are promoted to glory to sit at the feet of Jesus and worship him in person. God made us to bring glory to him. But one of those created beings that was made to bring glory to him the anointed cherub decided that instead of worshiping the true and living God, he was going to become God for himself. You know this from Ezekiel 14. That anointed cherub said, I will be like the Most High. The true and living God will not be God. I will be God for me. And then he shows up in the form of a serpent in Genesis chapter 3, and he whispers in the ear of that woman this lie. If you eat the fruit, you can be God for you. That's what I want. I want autonomy. I want independence. I want to be in charge of my own life. I will be the master of my own fate. I want to do what I want to do. And everything in our culture teaches me that I should stand on my own two feet and be a man and don't let anybody push you around. Believe in yourself. And every Disney movie ever made. <clears throat> Did I just say that out loud? Believe in yourself. If you just believe in yourself enough, you can do whatever you believe you can do. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm here to announce tonight 
to all of you that I believe, I really believe that I can win the pole vault in the Olympics next year. Are you laughing at my dream? How dare you? I strongly believe I'm supposed to be able to... <laughs> this is Humanism 101, isn't it? This is right out of the Humanist Manifesto number one, 1933. Whatever the mind can conceive and you can believe, you can achieve. That's a lie. And that woman took that fruit and she gave it to her husband and he ate that fruit thinking that they could circumvent God's authority and become like God's themselves. And from that day until this day, every one of us wants to be God for ourselves. You want independence and autonomy. You want to do what you want to do. You want to go where you want to go, eat what you want to eat, drink what you want to drink, sleep when you want to sleep as much as you want. We want independence. Nobody can tell me what to do. That's part of our fallenness, part of the corruption that exists in us. And so what I'm saying that we should already be doing, when we see God's forbearance, we should already be tuning our hearts to him. Not to ourselves. Our hearts are infinitely corrupt and wicked. Though redeemed, we still struggle with sin. What's the answer? Here it is. The answer is to consistently monitor your affections. What are you worshiping? The worship disorder started back in Genesis chapter 3. It exists in your heart and my heart today. What are you worshiping at this moment? You have a worship focus, and we all have a worship disorder. We want the wrong things. Train your heart to find satisfaction in Christ alone. And then, what else are you doing at this point? What are you already doing? So here's, here's the review. First, you're watching the nation's rage, so you stand. You're experiencing God's forbearance, so you worship. And third, what you're already doing is you are witnessing the exaltation of Jesus. Look at verse 7. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, and here goes, ladies and gentlemen, in 7, 8, and 9, all of this discussion of the second person of the Trinity, all of this discussion concerning who Jesus is and what he is now doing. Psalm 2, verse 7, is used many times in the New Testament to point to the authority of Jesus. Listen to this. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5, that uses verse 7, to point to the deity of Jesus. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Acts 13, 32 to 33, uses verse seven to point to the resurrection of Jesus. Quote, and we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus as also is written in the second Psalm. You are my son, Today I have begotten you. Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. The end of the great kenosis passage that begins at verse 5. Philippians 2, 9 to 11 uses verse 7 to point to the majesty of Jesus 
Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Verse 8 answers verse 1 in our text. Verse 1, why do the nations rage? The answer is because Jesus reigns over all the nations to the end of the earth. That's why they rage. Because they can't rule. Jesus rules. And verse 9 tells us that not only does he rule, but Jesus also judges the nations. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a grace-filled response to the raging nations. So, what is your response? Your response is to wait. Just wait. And by that I mean, remain expectant and biblically hopeful knowing that God will bring about the culmination of the age in his time for his glory. I love the way Pastor Scott prayed just before I came up. That's exactly right. There is a highly anticipated culmination of this age. Are you like me? When I was a kid, by the way, I was born again when I was seven years old. My earthly father led me to faith in Christ. So grateful to God for his grace at that moment to give me the faith to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you like me? From that point on, I had this thought. At some point, I thought, um, I know Jesus is coming anytime, but I hope he doesn't come till I grow up. Because I'd really like to, you know, maybe fall in love, possibly get married, something like that, Right? So I grew up and I went to college and went to the university and then got married. And, and, then, and then I thought, this is so selfish, isn't it? You're not like me, are you? You're not so selfish. I want Jesus to come, I really do, but it'd be cool if we could have at least one child. I'd love the, I'd love the joy of being a parent, right? So then we had one, and then two, and three, and four, and five, and and then it was something else. And after that, it was something else. And then it was, and, I, and it's sin, ladies and gentlemen, because we should be joyfully expectant of the return of the Lord at this very moment. Somebody say amen. amen. That's right, isn't it? And now I'm old, and now it seems like I'd sure love it if Jesus would come today. If I had a vote, he'd come right now. But it turns out that God isn't a Baptist, so I don't get a vote. Anyway, the... <laughs> But the point is, we wait. But we don't just wait around twiddling our thumbs, doing nothing. We wait expectantly, and we wait biblically, hopefully. Do you know what that means? That we are hopeful, not not hope like we use the word hope. The Bible word hope isn't used in the same way. We use the word hope like if the answer to the question, um, is grandma coming for dinner on Sunday? And the answer is, I hope so, which means 
That'd be really cool. I'd be happy if she did. I don't know for sure, but wouldn't that be great? That's the way we use the word hope. That's not the Bible word hope. When, when Titus is getting his letter from the Apostle Paul and he talks about the blessed hope of the return of the... Do you know what that means? That's a word in the original language that does not have an English equivalent. So therefore we translate it to the word hope, but it's a word that literally means a yet-to-be-fulfilled promise of God. It is absolutely going to happen because God said it is absolutely going to happen. If I said to you, for example, will Jesus return to the earth? Say yes or no. How do you know? (laughs) Because the Bible said so. And if Jesus doesn't return, God's a liar. And if God's a liar, God isn't God. And your faith is vain. And our preaching is also vain, as Paul said to the Corinthians. But the truth is, we have a biblical hope, a worthy expectation that God's going to do exactly what he said he is going to do. So, what must, what are you doing already? You're doing these things already. You are watching the nation's rage and therefore you're standing. You're experiencing God's forbearance and therefore you're worshiping. You are already witnessing the exaltation of Jesus Therefore, you are waiting. What must you do next? What you must do next are the five, five things that are listed for us there in verses 10 through 12. Here they are. First, you must live in biblical wisdom. Biblical wisdom is being alert to the circumstances around you. Wisdom is seeing and responding to the circumstances of life from God's frame of reference. If we filter what we're experiencing, our circumstances, if we're filtering those through God's word, through God's lens, we're going to live in wisdom. And that's exactly what we should be doing. Therefore, O kings, be wise. Think, speak, Feel biblically in obedience to what God wants you to do. This is an appeal for discernment. And specifically, some application questions for a missions conference. What's God doing around the world? Through your missionaries come to know what's happening. Do you even know who, you're here. You, You know some of the missionaries that are here at this conference but there's a whole board full of missionaries out there, many of which are not represented in this particular conference. Get to know them. Get to know what they are doing in places around the world. Second, serve the Lord. That means be aware of his presence. Everyone is a servant of something. You know Romans 6.16. Here's what it says. Do you not know that if you present yourselves as anyone, as to anyone, as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? Listen to this. Either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. The question is not, are you going to be a slave? The question is, will you be a slave to sin or a slave to obedience so how do you serve your 
missionaries? What's the methods that you are now using to be able to connect with them? There's a powerful image that comes from William Carey, and I think you know this story, or at least you know the phrase that comes from the story. William Carey, who blazed a trail to India in 1792, he likened his ministry to that of a miner penetrating into a deep mine, which had never before been explored with no one to guide him. And so he wrote to Andrew Fuller and John Ryland and other pastor friends, and he said, quote, if I go down, he said, no, he said, quote, I will go down if you will hold the rope. And John Ryland reports, he took an oath from each of us at the mouth of the pit to this effect, that while we lived, we should never let go of the rope. There are some of us involved in vocational missionary work. Some in the U.S. represented in this conference. Some in nations around the world, like Susie and I, and others here. Do you know what all of us need? We need you holding the rope, being alert and aware to what's, of what's happening in your missionaries' lives, praying consistently for them, finding, their, finding out about their current needs. Third, rejoice. What does that mean? Being aware of God's holiness. You're going to need to be alert to the need of God's presence. Everyone is a worshiper. We were made to worship. Every man, woman, and child ever born on planet Earth is a worshiper at every moment of their lives. Whether they're born again or not, whether they've ever heard the name of Jesus or not, all of us were made to worship. And all of us are worshiping at every moment of our lives. You are worshiping at this moment, someone or something. God wants your focus of worship to be on him. So he says in the text, rejoice with trembling. How are you serving your missionaries? And next is to submit to the son. A very interesting phrase there. Did you catch it? As I was reading through the text, kiss the son. Isn't that interesting? Kiss the son. What in the world does that mean? Literally means respect him, honor him. A kiss would be like a kiss that is given to the ring of a sovereign. It literally means respect, show homage to the son of God. Submit to the Son. Be aware of His grace at every moment of your life. What are the blessings and challenges that are today being faced by your missionaries? And then take refuge in Him. That's exactly what the text says. For His watch is quickly, His wrath is quickly kindled. The last phrase, blessed are all who take refuge in Him. How do you pray? for the members of your missions team here in this church. Help them, encourage them in prayer, sustain them. I've been so thankful for Gordon and his team and the way they've put this whole thing together. I'm so very grateful to God for allowing us to be part of that. That's your part in God's plan for missions. 
three things you're already doing. You are already standing against wickedness. You are already worshiping by training your heart. You are already waiting with expectation and hope. So what are you going to do next? You're going to do these five things. You're going to live in biblical wisdom. You're going to serve the Lord. You're going to rejoice. Here's a, here's a good question. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, is your heart happy in the Lord tonight? Say yes or no. Does your face know it? Could, could you just... Could you just kind of communicate that heart joy about 18 inches north and let your face in on the secret that you're really happy in the Lord? Would that be all right? You're going to rejoice. You're going to submit to the Son, and you're going to take refuge in him. I'm so grateful to God for his eternal sovereignty over the nations. I'm so very grateful that we have a God who, when the nations rage, rage, laughs. I'm so very thankful that we have a God in whom we can trust and on whom we can wait with joyful expectation. Would you join me in closing prayer? So now, dear Father, recognizing that you are the infinite, sovereign, holy, righteous, gracious, and merciful God of heaven, we bow our heads and our hearts in your presence to acknowledge your righteousness, to acknowledge that you are the creator, to acknowledge that you are strong and you are today fulfilling your eternal decrees on earth for your own glory's sake. And we bow, dear Father, to recognize in ourselves that we are the created thing, that we are the ones who are dependent, that we are the ones who are rebellious and belligerent toward your rule in our hearts. We bow, dear Father, because we must bow to remind ourselves that we are weak, and in need of your mercy and grace in every moment. And therefore, we come boldly to ask, because our Savior and Sovereign, the Lord Jesus, has told us to come boldly to ask whatever we will. Here's our ask for tonight. Would you, dear Father, sear into our hearts the image of your sovereignty over the nations? Would you, dear Father, cause us to rejoice in your patience and in your kindness in letting the nations for a few more hours or days or years rage against you giving to us the certain knowledge that Jesus rules and reigns and he will reign supremely in the hearts of all peoples. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord for the sake of your glory. And would you, dear Father, 
for this time during which missions are necessary. Would you, dear Father, during this temporary interlude on earth, make of all of us missions aware? Would you give to us a sense of what you are doing around the world and cause us to be a meaningful part of your grand mission? All of this I ask and pray in the name and through the blood of the Lord Jesus and for the sake of his glory alone. Amen. God bless you.